Hello and welcome to episode six of the Thinking LSAT podcast in foggy San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. How are you doing, Ben? Oh, I'm doing good. It's actually uh, pretty cool today. And I'm at my house, which is in northern Virginia and surrounded by trees, which I think also makes things cooler. So Very nice. You got the kids running around in the background? Yeah, although I just told them to go down to the basement because I don't... <laughs> I tell them, don't come in this room, and they say, okay, yeah, no problem. And then like two minutes later, they're banging on the door saying, <laughs> well, you have an argument. I'm like, I don't want to resolve this argument right now. Uh, they're good kids. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so today on the show, we're going to discuss a YouTube video entitled African Americans, Law Schools, and the LSAT with Professor Alex Johnson. Ben, you turned me on to this a couple uh, episodes ago, and I had a chance to watch it, and you've had a chance to rewatch it. And uh, I think we both agree that there's tons of uh, food for thought in this article that uh, it would interest not only people who are specifically interested in diversity issues, but just pretty much anybody who's uh, thinking about applying to law school or even in law school. Do you agree with that? Oh, certainly. And actually, when I was just watching it again this morning, I was surprised by how candid he was with the numbers. Like he kept saying, um, I don't remember what it was exactly, but it seems like, or I don't know what it is now, but here's the number for this. For example, how much money law schools spend on each student and all this stuff. I mean, I don't know how available that information is, but he just kept pouring it out. So yeah. that was kind of cool. Yeah, totally. And, and he was also very candid, I thought, with his opinions. Um, he's done some academic writing on these issues, so I suppose he has the uh, expertise and the firepower behind him to, to say some bold things. So yeah. anyway, it's, it's a really great video, and we will put a link to it in the show notes on thinkinglsat.com. But again, the title is African Americans, Law Schools, and the LSAT. So I think we both have a bunch of notes here. Maybe I'll just kind of go through my notes from top to bottom, and we can talk about the points. Um, yeah, one good. At a time. All right, so the first thing that I think was really interesting, and this would definitely be valuable for all test takers, is to learn a little bit about the history of the test. So he said that the LSAC is made up of the 200 ABA law schools, they vote for a board of directors, and then that board of directors sets the policy for the LSAC, including um, the, what goes on the LSAT. Um, his interpretation of the history of the development of the LSAT is that it was a quote-unquote uh, tool of inclusion. And I think some people will be surprised, uh, especially if they think that the LSAT is going to keep them out of law school. They'd be surprised to, to hear that the LSAT is a tool of inclusion. But the logic for uh, behind that statement, whether or not you agree with his interpretation of history, is that uh, it used to be that pretty much anyone who wanted to go to law school would go to law school. Then uh, after World War II, all the GIs were coming back from service and wanting to go to law school. And suddenly we had uh, too many applicants for spots. And what was happening was uh, people of diverse racial, ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds were then getting shut out of law school because the kind of prep school to Harvard undergrad to Harvard Law School good old boy network was um, unfairly preferring kind of the uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the field. And they started using the LSAT because they wanted to have some sort of a numeric, um, hopefully objective measure of getting people in, and his opinion, uh, Alex, Professor Alex Johnson's opinion, is that the LSAT, since its inception, has been actually used to uh, kind of make law school more of a meritocracy and get the people in there who can at least do well on this one test. Am I stating all that correctly, Ben? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and I also seem to remember him saying that it it seemed to work really well at the beginning, and then I guess he left it up saying after the 80s, maybe that's what's debatable. Maybe okay. it's no longer serving its purpose as effectively. I mean, I don't think he would say it's not. He seems to think it's a very good test, but I guess it's maybe not serving it as well or possibly not as well because of its failure to figure out what to do 
Or the score differential between. Yeah, which he gets into fairly quickly, and he says, kind of right at the top of the of the discussion, he says that uh, one fifty three, he says, is roughly an average score. Um, I think that that's probably not quite right. I think that the number is actually more like 150. But then he says that the average for African Americans taking the test at the time uh, was 143 or 144. And uh, that might not sound like a huge discrepancy, but you got to remember that the LSAT's scale is very compressed. The scale only goes from 120 to 180. There's only actually 60 points on the scale. So if the average score is 150 even, and African Americans are scoring 143, 144, that's a huge, huge discrepancy in terms of percentiles. So I looked up the percentiles. 150 is the 50th percentile. 143 is the 20.5th percentile. So if African Americans are scoring 143, that means the average African American is uh, getting beat by uh, 80 out of 100 other test takers. Yeah, which um, that's enough to probably keep most African-Americans out of law school, actually. And he goes on to talk a lot more about that. So we have a sad state of affairs uh, with the LSAT. Of course, there are uh, socioeconomic factors which are probably causing the bulk of this discrepancy. He does say that the wealthier you are, the better education you have, the better you tend to do. Of course, we know that uh, on average, African-Americans tend to be poorer and less educated in the United States. Um, but then he says the problem with the test actually extends deeper than just the socioeconomic factors because he says that the wealthiest whites do better than the wealthiest blacks and the poorest whites do better than the poorest blacks. And he says that the gap is therefore persistent. Um, I guess that's a definition in... Uh, some sort of math terms, persistent. So then he talks about the experimental section and ways that they use the experimental section to try to remove uh, statistical differences in the way questions are answered. So he says that they actually compare the results of each question um, on the experimental section. They'll test to make sure that they're not getting huge differences in terms of who's getting it right based on gender, based on race, based on ethnicity, based on uh, education, socioeconomic factors. So what they're doing there is they're comparing like, hey, you're white, you scored 170 on the test. Uh, you are African-American, you scored 170 on the test. So these are people who are scoring similarly on the test. And then they're making sure that there aren't questions uh, involved in the test where whites are scoring way better than blacks or where blacks are scoring way better than whites. And they kick out questions. Uh, does that sound right, Ben? Yeah, that's right. And I think something that you mentioned earlier was the fact that uh, in the time, during the time when he was in charge, there were only two questions that failed that test and had to be kicked out of the test. And I guess when, since it happened so rarely, he mentioned that they actually bring those questions to the board of directors. Um, and one of the questions he said, I think it favored white students. And then the other question actually favored black students. So um, it was, you know, anyway, it's just something interesting to think about, uh, which makes me think actually that the questions that they put on the test, I mean, if they're only rejecting two of them. That's, that's pretty good. They have some good way of, filtering their questions before they put them even on the experimental section. Well, when we talked earlier about this issue, not on the podcast, you, I think you said something about how they, they do test the questions pretty rigorously um, even before they get to the experimental section. That's right. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, it's just a guess, but I, I read uh, someone who is a contractor for LSAC, and what their job was, they were asked to write questions, and apparently what LSEC does is it tells them to write, tells their contractors to write 10 questions. And um, that contractor was saying that he was hopeful that he would be glad if four of those questions ever ended up on a test. So it sounds like a lot of the questions that are submitted don't even make it to the test. Okay. 
Yeah, so anyway, they, they definitely have some uh, pretty serious procedures in place to try to make the test fair. Um, I do think that, you know, uh, it would be naive, I think, for students to say, oh, this test is discriminatory on its face. It's just, we're, you know, we're looking to get, looking to keep um, diverse races and ethnicities out of law school. I think that would be probably, um, well, I think definitely a naive opinion. At the very least, you should watch this, uh, this video, which um, I, I, I came away from the first 15 minutes, at least, convinced that this is an issue that the LSAC is thinking about very seriously. Uh, they, they, they really want to include as many people as they can in law school, and they're just trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, and he pointed out that they've done a better job than any other standardized test out there of narrowing that gap. I see. Okay, um, he then talks uh, quite a bit about why the LSAT is so important. He says that the LSAT is an extremely good predictor of law school performance. And Ben, maybe you remember the exact numbers. How, how, how much of variation in 1L grades did he say you can predict just based solely on the LSAT? Well, he, um, he said that there was a 0.43 correlation, which then he said had to be squared for some reason. Of course, he didn't explain why, and he may not even know why, but that made that 16%. So apparently... Um, it accounts for, the LSAT accounts for 16% of your likelihood of getting a certain GPA. Okay. I mean, and so it's actually a lot smaller, but then you combine that with your undergraduate GPA and it comes to around 20%. Okay. But even with the, uh, if, it, if, it, if the LSAT will explain 16% of variation in 1L grades, uh, that's still a a really big lever. Um, he, he put kind of a table up on the whiteboard where he was saying, okay, well, if we've got X number of people who score 170 on the test and X number of people who score 160 on the test and X number of people who score 150 on the test, we can figure out how many of those X people are going to then be in the top quartile of their class or uh, in the bottom quartile of their class. And I don't know where he was getting those numbers from, but it was pretty stark uh, that the people who do the best on the LSAT are going to be overwhelmingly in the top of the grades after the 1L year. And the people who do the worst on the LSAT in the incoming class are going to do the worst in grades. Not every single person, but yeah. uh, if you were a betting man and you, and you had the opportunity to bet on the entire field, um, the top quartile of LSAT scorers is going to pretty well trounce the bottom quartile in LSAT scorers. Uh, when the 1L grades come in. Yes. Okay. So again, you know, nobody should be hitting the panic button, and I, I don't think that anybody should be jumping out of the law school applications process just because of this fact. But um, it, it just is true that the LSAT does a really good job of predicting how well you're going to do, uh, in, in at least for grade-wise, in your first year of law school. And... Just in case people don't know, I mean, grades in your 1L year of law school are extremely important for uh, really the entire career that you're going to have as a lawyer, at least the first, you know, five years of your career. Because um, I don't know if it was like this for you in law school, Ben, but I remember that when the first semester grades were out, people immediately started getting better and worse uh, opportunities based on yeah. just their first semester's grades. Yeah, no, it definitely is important. Um, but like you're saying, it's not something to be discouraged about because actually what I think is so interesting is given the fact that you can improve your score um, and actually quite dramatically if you put in the effort on the LSAT, then uh, it seems like since it is pretty good at predicting your first year grades, if you want to do well your first year, then the effort you put into the LSAT, which will not only help you get into a better law school, will also presumably help you do better your first year. Yeah, um, there's a study out recently saying that LSAT prep actually changes the 
structure of your brain. You learn to make uh, different sorts of logical connections. And so, yeah, through, through studying the LSAT, you, you actually can kind of start working on your 1L grades in advance by working on the LSAT. The other thing, of course, you could do is when you're um, trying to decide where to go to school, you can think about strategically whether you want to sneak in the back door of some school. Um, you know, just because UVA will let you squeak in with a 165, say, uh, do you really want to go to UVA squeaking in with a 165? I don't know if that's actually the right number at UVA. What do you think the 25th percentile is at UVA? Uh, well, actually, he's... The, the numbers he gave was 166 to 171. I oh, think. 166, 25th percentile at the time. I mean, yeah, that was that's in right. 2008, so okay. I don't know if that's changed. But but strategically, and we talked a lot in of, of strategy in our uh, admission strategy in our last episode, episode five with my student uh, Lizelle's case. We talked a lot about whether you you want to be the big fish in the small pond or the small fish in the big pond, and I I definitely come, came away from Professor Johnson's talk even more convinced that you really don't want to put yourself in the position where you kind of barely get in um, to a school because the low percentile, if you're in the bottom quartile of LSAT scores, you're going to have a really hard time uh, competing academically at that school. Yeah, I, I, I mostly agree with that. I guess since I seem to value the ranking of the school a little bit more than, than you might, I would be more inclined to squeak in because I look at it as a, a, a something that you can use. Like if you have a high-ranking school on your resume, um, I, I value that a little bit. So even if – but, of course, the first-year grades and your grades throughout law school are very important, and that's what we talked about as well. I guess I would – I think it's a balancing act, but it's something that I might be inclined to, to take a shot at, especially if you consider why you might not have done well in the LSAT. Like if your official LSAT score was lower than what you were scoring and you feel like it was a little unusual, so you're actually probably higher up there. You also have to realize that 80% of your first year grades depend on how much you like law school, whether you have, he was mentioning trouble with like significant others. <laughs> Yeah, and all factors. these other factors. And so if you look at yourself as someone who's going to law school and you know what law school is all about and you know you're going to like it, um, which you know some people don't, they don't know what they're getting into, then maybe you're actually a candidate who's likely to do really well in terms of your grades, even if you didn't do well or as well as, the, as your fellow students and it, um, at that school. Of course. And, and it also depends... Um, on how good of a school we're talking about, right? So I think, again, we talked about this a little bit last time. If you squeak in the back door of Stanford and Harvard and Yale and probably any school in the top 14, it might be worth going because even if you're last in your class at UVA, you're probably going to still get some uh, on-campus interview offers. And, th you know, things can work out well if you're um, the small fish in the big pond, if it's a really, really good pond. Um, mm -hmm. I think where people tend to make strategic mistakes is when they're looking at a school that's ranked like 50th in the country, and if they're going to barely squeak in the back door of a school that's ranked 50th in the country, they're not going to be getting a lot of on-campus interviewing um, opportunities. After the end of my first semester at Hastings, uh, I was no longer eligible for the bulk of the on-campus interviewing that was going to happen. The big firms were there. But the big firms were also saying we're only interviewing the top 10% or we're only interviewing the top 25% of the class, which meant that immediately the bulk of the um, class was not eligible for any of those benefits anymore. So yeah. you just got to be a savvy consumer. You got to ask lots of questions, I think, before you dive in. Okay, so the next thing that I found was uh, really interesting. He said, the LSAC people, that was his direct quote, the LSAC people, and I guess he used to be one of those people, so he's not being uh, disparaging or anything. He said, the LSAC people uh, evaluate the indices that each law school uses every year to predict grades. So I guess, Ben, you just rewatched it, but my understanding is 
every school, when they do their admission uh, decision, they're making an index out of people's uh, LSAT score and undergraduate GPA. And then they're submitting that index to the LSAC at the end of every year, along with the grades of everybody that they admitted. Uh, and the LSAC is then evaluating those indices. Is that right? Well, wait, so I don't, I don't remember the part about them submitting it to LSAC. I just remember, and maybe I wasn't focusing on the right part, but the deans at each school uh, just evaluate their, um, the predict, how well they predicted their incoming classes first year grades. Okay. And, but maybe they submitted to LSAC as well. I don't know. But the, the thing that was interesting about that was how accurately they were able to predict them. It was basically, and, and that didn't just include the LSAT score, it included um, undergraduate GPA, and it may have included other things, but it was turned into some sort of number. And then that number correlated pretty well with their. Uh, overall grades. So as their number went up, their grades for the first semester tended to go up. Yeah. And there was, uh, there's always some outliers he pointed out, but you know, in general, yeah. it was predictive. And the takeaway again for me was just how deeply the the schools and the LSAC are, are thinking about trying to make the right decisions, that they really want the admissions process to be based on uh, you know, figuring out who's going to actually be successful in law school and who's not going to be successful in law school. Then, though, the very next thing that he starts talking about is how U.S. News is the bane of most deans' existence. That's a direct quote. And he talks about how U.S. News and World Report does their law school rankings every year. And he talks about some of the decisions that uh, the admissions folks and deans have to make in order to try to play that law school rankings game. Um, I was a bit shocked uh, with his stories about law porn. And what this is, is uh, the U.S. news rankings are based partially on reputation, and the reputation is judged by the other schools, uh, probably by lawyers and alums and stuff too, but, but at least... Oh, yeah, I actually, I did catch that number. So I guess um, 25%, I don't know how that would come into play, but 25% was, so mostly it was judges and lawyers, actually. Okay. And then the rest were professors and deans. Professors and deans, okay. But the professors yeah. and deans are on these mailing lists. And the point is, um, because lawyers, judges, and professors and deans uh, are asked to vote each year by U.S. News and World Report. Asked to vote on the <clears throat> quality, vote on the reputation of the school of of each law school. Law schools spend quite a bit of time and money. It sounds like, uh, and chop down quite a few trees in the pursuit of convincing lawyers and judges and other law schools how good their law school is. So he said at, at a certain time every year, like right before the U.S. News uh, survey goes out, all of the schools start bombing a bunch of glossy garbage. Again, he called it law porn uh, out to anybody who has a vote in the U.S. News uh, reputation rankings. And he said that, of course, all of that glossy stuff uh, gets basically just immediately uh, trashed. <laughs> but schools feel like they can, you know, play the law school rankings game by um, spending all this money and time and effort on sending out the law porn. Yes. And they do that because it, it accounts for 40% of their ranking in the U.S. News and World Report ranking system. So it's actually more important than the reputation is more important than the LSAT score. Uh, unfortunately, they just don't have much control over it. I mean, they send out this law porn or whatever, but it doesn't really, as he was saying, have a whole lot of an effect yeah. on their actual reputation. And so, although they do it because they've got to try, at least, I guess, but 
uh, ultimately the first thing that they really do have control over is the LSAT score. Yeah, and he moved back to that fairly quickly, and he said um, that because LSAT score, and this is, uh, by the way, the highest LSAT score for each member of the incoming 1L class, that's the metrics that they're going to be using. Um, so, you know, if you take the test multiple times, remember that the law schools are really going to be evaluating you based on your highest LSAT score, because that's what U.S. News does. Um, he said that that the, the, the statistic, the LSAT statistics of the incoming class is one of the things that the admissions folks can actually control. So they really look carefully at LSAT score you know, when they're evaluating anybody's admission candidacy. And Professor Johnson said, I've never been involved in an admissions uh, system like this, but I know that there are schools out there where the dean will go directly to the admissions folks and say, listen, our ranking needs to go up. If our ranking doesn't go up, I'm going to get fired. So next year, when you send me the statistics for the incoming class, I want 171 to be the 75th percentile, and I want 166 to be the 25th percentile. And if you don't do that, I'm going to get fired. So if you don't do that, you're going to be fired. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. He claims that he's never been at a school where that's been actually what happens, but it, it, he's, it seems fairly obvious that that is what happens in uh, a non-zero number of cases. Yeah. So which made me and think then that the LSAT might be even more important than what I had been previously thinking. Yeah, well, because one thing he also pointed out was that when you look at the U.S. News World Report ranking, there is almost a one-to-one -one correlation between LSAT score range and your ranking. So the higher your LSAT score goes up, the average, not the average for the school, but the, the 25th and 75th percentiles, as those go up, your ranking goes up. And that in the year he was looking at the rankings, there was only one school in the top 50 that was that fell outside of that quote. It was not in directly order of just LSAT score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, amazing. Um, and then I had a couple more holy shit moments. Uh, he, this is where he got really candid with a couple of quotes. So he said, quote, you don't want to admit a 140 to compete with the 166s. And I don't think I had ever heard a professor or somebody involved in admissions at all. I don't think he's involved in admissions at UVA. I think he's just a professor. But I'd never heard anybody in, uh, on the inside of law school say it that starkly. Um, if you talk to admissions folks, what you always hear is, oh, no, we evaluate every piece of your application, and you know we never would let one single factor be the determinant of whether you get into law school or not. And uh, we have plenty of examples of people with lower LSAT scores and with wonderful personal statements and blah, 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 blah. And they, they really try to give people the impression that the LSAT is less important. But um, you know, here he's saying, no, we're not going to admit a 140 to compete with people who are getting 166s, and the reason why he's saying that is because he doesn't think it's fair to the 140. Yeah, and he gave some specific numbers for UVA. He didn't know them, but he said, okay, so the 25th percentile is 166, the 75th percentile is 171, and he said, I don't know for sure, but I would bet that there is no one at UVA below a 155 and yeah. he thought that it was realistically maybe even a 160 so that there was there was no one at that school who had lower than a 160 so in terms of numbers there i mean that's six points below the 25th percentile um but that's just the 25th percentile and that's the lowest score at the school so when you're applying i guess the takeaway at least for me was you got to stay pretty close to that range otherwise they're just not really seriously going to consider you, well, and then probably rightly so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you're not you don't have much of a chance applying to a school when your LSAT score is below the twenty fifth percentile. I mean, that means that only one out of four people in their school got lower than than that score that you're that you're trying to get in with. Yeah, and well, I, I think I just pointed out because sometimes I hear a lot of people saying, "Oh, I'm going to shoot for Harvard or whatever," and I, you know, or Yale, or I might as well just. Throw the Hail Mary, which I, you know, I guess is 
doesn't cost that much. Sometimes it's free, so you might as well try. I guess there's nothing wrong with that. But um, sometimes I think they might be wasting their time on applications that are just well out of their reach. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. I would say to a student that you know, if if you've grown up ever since you were a little kid wearing a, a Cardinal Stanford hat, and you are Stanford is your dream school. And you have a 165, which is like probably below the 25th percentile at Stanford. I think you should probably still go ahead and apply to Stanford if that's your number one dream school. Um, but it, you know you probably shouldn't apply to every school in the top 14 because you're just you're you're kind of wasting time and wasting money because you are going to get shut down at the bulk of those schools if you're if you're not even close. Um, yeah. He talks about applicants, quote, misapplying. He says that there are 200 applicants every year at UVA with less than a 150 LSAT, and zero of them are admitted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, not to crush anybody's dreams. And again, I, I do think that you probably should go ahead and fire in an application to the one school that you really want to go to the most, no matter what. But, um, for the bulk of your applications, you need to be applying to places where you're above the 25th percentile LSAT. Mm-hmm. Um, the other quote that he said that was, I, I, again, I, I found it shocking in its candidacy, and I, I, I want to look this guy up to see if he still has his job. I hope he does, because I'm glad he's out there uh, you know, speaking honestly. But he said, uh, gee, you're, only, you're the only 150 in the class. The odds are almost overwhelming that you'll be in the bottom quartile of the class. And he was referring to 1L grades. Yeah. Um, I had never heard a law professor or uh, admissions person talk with anywhere near that degree of candidacy. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think they, well, they they don't because I guess theoretically that's not necessarily true, right? You could always do better. And if they've admitted that person, uh, maybe they saw something in their application that made them thought they would succeed. But yeah, I mean, statistically the chances are very low. Um, okay, so then he, uh, let's see, we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up a little bit. There's, there is still some more, I thought, shocking stuff. Um, he said that uh, he did talk about, we, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, he said law schools, this is another direct quote, he said law schools are unlike business schools or other colleges, we're all the same. And he got out a big, thick book, which is requirements uh, coming from, where are those requirements coming from? The ABA, I guess. Um, yeah, the ABA, which has been directed by the Department of Education to okay. be and the accrediting body for got law it. schools. So a big, thick book of all of the requirements, uh, including you have to use the LSAT uh, in your admissions process or a similar test. Um, but for him to be claiming, for him to be standing up there saying, uh, which I have believed this for quite a while, that all that law schools are all the same now. The reputation of the law schools is not the same, and the tuition of the law schools is not the same, and there are factors. But as far as educational experience goes, uh, in your 1L year, it kind of does not matter where you go. You will be studying the exact same thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, just really quick, one other thing I thought was fascinating, and I had forgotten about this, but he said that at UVA, he wasn't sure exactly what the numbers were, but he, he was saying that the school spends uh, $70,000 per student, whereas, you know, tuition is around uh, $40,000. So, I mean, I, I guess that makes sense. I guess they're pulling in money from donations and the endowment and so forth. But um, his point was that, look, you're getting a deal. It costs a lot of money, but we're putting a lot of more money into you. And I kind of forgot about that and, was surprised, I guess, by how much yeah. they're losing per student. I mean, I could, you know, I, I could kind of argue back against that. the The fact that they spend more money than they're taking in on tuition doesn't necessarily mean that the student's getting a good deal, right? I mean, um, you you know, because what are they spending the money on? They're spending the money on professors' tuitions and, uh, uh, sorry, professors' salaries and other stuff. So. It's like the fact that they pay law school professors $300,000 a year, does that really directly benefit the students? I'm not sure that it 
that it does. Yeah, I guess I was just surprised that there was a that they were spending more than they were taking in. So I guess what it is is you pay forty thousand dollars, and then as an as an alum, you pay the the thirty thousand later with you know donations and so on. Yeah, or if you're like me, you don't spend a goddamn penny more uh, on your law school education ever. I get the, uh, oh man, I mean, I'm sure you get the, the continued pleas from uh, your alma mater. Yeah, oh yeah, every yeah. year. Yeah, I, I've, I've opted, I've, I've asked them to unsubscribe me from that list because uh, at the very least they don't need to be wasting money on um, asking me for money. I, I did remember, I, I brought it in as my, uh, to my class and like held it up and showed it to them. Um, right when I graduated from law school, which I guess was 2011, and it was right when you know there was nobody was getting a job right out of law school in 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, they it was like right after I had graduated, and they're immediately sending me a card asking me to donate more money back to the school. Um, they also have sent some pretty tasteless like. Uh, it's it's a, like a Christmas card, like a holiday card. It looks like a holiday card on the outside, and you're, oh, you're wow. yeah, and you're thinking it's like Happy Holidays, and then it's like Happy Holidays, you know, give us money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, apparently but, people really enjoy their law school experience and donate a lot of money. That's great. I hope everybody listening uh, loves their law school so much that they decide to donate money to them forever. Uh, I will not be joining you. In that, um, anyway, the the next thing that he said, and now I hope I hope I have these numbers wrong. Did he really say that there were 150 African Americans who scored over 170? Oh, I don't remember that actual number. Well, um, I wrote them down, so I think I've got them right. He wrote he wrote this on the board, and I, maybe he was wrong, but this sounds amazingly low to me. He said 150 African Americans every year scoring over 170. 250 more of them scoring over 160, and then 500 more of them scoring over 153, or over whatever the 50th percentile is. Um, that's wait, wait, so we're just talking about hundreds here? Because if you add that up, I mean, that's 500 plus 200 plus yeah, it's nine, 900 total. So he said that's, over 153. That, that's, yeah, 153, which he might have meant 150, because I think he was talking about the 50th percentile. But anyway... That's 900 African-Americans scoring above the median out of 7,000 African-Americans applying. And he said he thought maybe 9,000 taking the test. So 9,000 taking the test, 7,000 of them applying, presumably all 900 or most of the 900 who scored over the median would be among those 7,000 who are applying. Yeah. Um, But those numbers just sounded... I, I, I mean, when there's 200 law schools in the country, or 200 ABA-accredited law schools, wow. it's amazing yeah. to me that there are only 900 African-Americans scoring at the median or above. I guess I'd like to find, huh. I think maybe the LSAC publishes some data. It'd be really interesting to see some new data. If any listeners out there know where we can get exactly this data, if you happen to have it handy, um, please drop a line in the comments on thinkinglsat.com, or you can contact me directly. That's Nathan at foxlsat.com. Uh, you can get Ben at uh, ben at strategyprep.com. But we'd love to hear from you on this issue or on any other issue. Um, but those numbers are just uh, surprisingly paltry. Yeah. I wow. suppose if you are an African American who is scoring at the median or higher, or especially if you're scoring at 160 or higher, or especially if you're scoring 170 or higher, it does mean that it's going to be an amazing buyer's market for you. You are going to probably be able to write your own ticket. Yes, you'll be Um, able to go wherever you want. Yeah, and and for free, right? I would imagine that the the, the 150... African Americans scoring over 170. That's just got to be for those 150 candidates. Uh, they've got to be going to pretty much anywhere they want to go, and probably not paying anything to go to school. Yeah. Um, he then, uh, on that point, he said, uh, and again, I, I kind of can't believe he says this out loud, but he says 
the students who are not sought after pay for the other students. And that's something that I've kind of told my classes almost as a joke for quite a while. I've said, listen, if you don't get a scholarship, you're paying for someone else's law school education in addition to yours. And I was kind of just making that up, but now here we have Professor Johnson <laughs> just uh, <laughs> saying, no, this is, that's exactly what's happening. The reason why tuitions have skyrocketed so much is because we're all playing this law school rankings game and in an effort to increase our 75th and 25th percentile LSAT scores, we have to go out and um, essentially buy those uh, high scores with scholarship money. He yeah. said, um, again, direct quote, half your class is on free rides, the other half, low scorers, or the ones who don't diversify the class, those are the ones who pay for all the rest. So he was speaking to the Black Law Student Association, right, at UVA? I did not know what so, the, I knew it was UVA, I didn't know what the exact audience was. I, I think that was the, the audience, or the ones who were hosting it, I'm sure other people were there as well, but um, <laughs> I guess it would have been fun to be in that audience and think, oh, well, I'm paying full, and someone else thinking, oh, I'm not paying, this is, this is great, and this sucks. Yeah. But then again, you know, you pay for it and you get into a better ranked school than you could have. Maybe that's it was worth it. So again, it can be worth it. I think if you're at the very, very top. But when you're paying for it, if you barely squeak into you know the school that's ranked fiftieth in the country, um, I think I usually would recommend that you go ahead and just take a scholarship at a school that's ranked a hundredth in the country instead because I don't think that the reputation of that school that's ranked 50th in the country is really going to be worth the 150 grand that you wouldn't have to pay at a slightly lower ranked school. Yes. That's my opinion. Um, I, I had a, a, my own conclusion, and I'm trying to think of what the actual facts were that led me to this conclusion, but he, maybe it was when he was talking about people misapplying to law school it made me think that this, this diversity gap, you know, I mean, the whole point of this discussion is that there just aren't enough faces of color that are in law school classes. Um, my law school class was, it had to be 50% white, uh, you know, maybe 60% white, 30% Asian, and then fill in the rest with African Americans, uh, Hispanics. Uh, what have you. And so, you know, that doesn't represent the population as a whole. So we're talking about how do we make law schools look more like the face of um, just the world. And I came away thinking that, you know, I've seen tons of diversity outreach efforts around here, which are, they always seem to be based on drumming up interest in law school. And, okay. Um, so things like Day at Law School, uh, Diversity Outreach Day here in San Francisco, it's like, it's based, it, it's sort of centered around, let's go get uh, undergraduates and even junior colleges and even high school students uh, of color and let's get them fired up about, you know, let's, let's convince them that they can apply to law school. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, look at these numbers, 7,000 African-American applicants, but only 900 of them who scored at the median on the LSAT or better. So it seems to me that the problem is actually not in getting people to apply. The, 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 way, the way that I would work on this issue would be on trying to help people of color get over the LSAT barrier. Yeah, help them with the LSAT, which will help them get a higher score. And as we were talking about earlier, the better you get do on the LSAT, the more prepared you might actually be for law school. Yeah, it's well. not only going to help you get in, but it's like going to actually help you um, excel once you're there. So um, to shift gears slightly, Ben, we talked a little bit yesterday, and, and we just decided that we would hash it out on the show, but we were looking for a volunteer. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. So I don't know what we're going to call this. I suppose we'll come up with a name for it at some point. But Ben and I would like to uh, reach out to our audience, and we're looking specifically for one person who uh, has Skype, who's willing to come on and talk to us on the show. 
and we would like somebody who's interested in taking the LSAT this fall, so the September test. And what we want to do is we want to coach you toward getting prepared for the September LSAT. Now, we, we're not promising that we're going to be your number one uh, tutor or that we're going to be your only preparation for the test. But what we are looking for is somebody who will come on the show once every couple weeks, once every three weeks, do a little quick update. Um, we'll talk to you about, we will provide you quite a bit of uh, free consulting. We'll talk to you about your scores as they currently stand. We'll talk to you about things you can do to improve your scores. Uh, we'll give you some assignments and then you go away and work and come back and talk to us two weeks later and we'll reassess and we'll give you some, some new assignments. How, does that sound about right, Ben? Yeah, it sounds good. I'm, I'm excited to you know, work with someone and, and just see what the issues that they're struggling with as they prepare and how we can help them and then hopefully help others who are kind of in the same situation. So. Absolutely. So if you're interested in uh, being the first person in uh, what maybe will turn into a recurring uh, effort on, on our behalf, you can email us. Again, that's Nathan at FoxLSAT.com and Ben at StrategyPrep.com. We'd be interested in hearing why you, you, know, why you are the, the person that we're looking for. Um, I don't want to limit it to just African-Americans and Hispanics, but African-Americans and Hispanics are the, the two populations, I think, that are uh, at least foremost in my mind as, as being underrepresented. And, um, you know, if we could find a candidate who is currently scoring 140 and we could help you to move yourself up to 160, um, that would be something that I would, I would be very interested in doing. And Ben, I thank you as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so send us an email about your circumstances. Uh, tell us what you're currently scoring on the test, if anything. Uh, tell us that you do have Skype. Tell us that you are willing to come on the show. And uh, then we'll be back in touch and we'll pick somebody out shortly and hopefully in an episode uh, coming up soon, we'll, uh, we'll introduce you to the audience. Great. Good idea, Nathan. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing diversity outreach efforts here in San Francisco since I started. I've, I've always given away seats in my classes, and I've always uh, given away materials and participated in different community outreach events and whatnot. But um, I've had a hard time, like, really creating some sort of a sustainable program. Um, I've been... I've been surprised how, how hard it is because I, I have a genuine interest in doing something about this. So maybe maybe what the solution is is just to find one person and, and start helping them and take it from there. Yeah, I say give it a shot and see how it goes and what we learn from it. So. Okay. Um, I think that's all I have on my notes. Did we miss anything from the video that you wanted to talk about, Ben? No, I just wanted to... Um, emphasize that study again. We didn't talk about it as much as we had talked about it before. Just that there was a study where they had people studying for the LSAT and they looked at, they took MRI scans of their brain and they noticed that after three months of studying, the connections between the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain had uh, dramatically increased. And so I think that shows pretty strongly that there is actually something changing in your brain. You're not just learning like new bits of knowledge that help you succeed on the test. You're actually physically getting more able to reason through things and basically become smarter. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I don't, you know, I don't understand the science behind it. I have seen that article and I, I would like to reread it. So we'll dig that up and we'll post that to uh, the show notes on thinkinglsat.com. If you would like to read that study, we'll have that link for you. We'll also have the link to the uh, Alex Johnson YouTube video. But just from my experience in the LSAT classroom, it's obvious that there are changes that are happening in the way people think. Um, the LSAT is not a test of knowledge. It is not a test, like most tests that you're used to, 
where you're going to be tested on facts or you're even going to be tested on like, uh, do you know how to do long division? Uh, this test doesn't work that way. This test is much more about, I don't know, it's uh, <clears throat> a more holistic test of how your brain works. And it's more like a game that if you practice it a lot, you will become really good at it. Um, yeah. And I guess that's just a, a change that's happening in your brain. And I do think that it it is... Um, it's very clear that, and I even remember in law school that there were, from time to time, there were issues that uh, some of the class seemed to have a hard time grasping where my understanding of the kinds of logic that they use on the LSAT just made the issue in the law school classroom trivial. Yeah. So there is things that you do have to learn, and there are things that to make sure you're thinking about them in the right way. But once you know how to think about them in the right way, and then you practice that, I think you're, you're essentially building muscle, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I think the practicing is a lot more important than the knowledge itself, I guess. I mean, I think my curriculum, I could probably boil my curriculum down to like 15 bullet points. Uh, you know, like this is all of the stuff that you objectively need to know on the test. Like, do you know what only if means? Do you know what if and only if means? you know what unless means uh there's just not that many of them yeah no that's true i so in terms of not i guess there's like two types of knowledge then there's the knowledge like what you're talking about specifically what do these words mean and how should you interpret them and then there's the knowledge of what you should do to think about like how you should approach certain ideas or things right like that's like almost like how do you bat the how do you swing the bat or something like that? Which yeah. is different than knowledge about the bat itself or about baseball rules. Or well, something. I think sports is just a perfect example, though, because you know, if, if we're learning how to hit a baseball, we do not start with a fundamental treatise on the theory of you know, baseball bat swinging. Instead, you just get up there and you take some cuts. And yeah. the more you do that, the better you're going to get at it. And that's the, the really great thing about the test, about the LSAT, is that there are 70-something practice tests that are out there, and if you just start doing them, um, if you review after you do the tests, you will get better at it. And It's like a, just the practice and the repetition can really do uh, wonders on the test. Yep. Okay, I think that's all I got. You have anything else uh, we want to talk about, Ben? No, that's it. Okay, cool. Um, please uh, like the show on Facebook. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Please tell a friend. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thanks.